Well, my task this morning in our series on the Apostles' Creed is the third day he rose again from the dead. And this is one of those sermons that uh, is not ambiguous. It is very explicit. And it's, it's not one of those sermons where you don't have little material. You almost have too much. And so, uh, but it's been a joy to prepare. So my task here is to expound on this story, but also to give evidence and reason why we believe that Jesus rose again on the third day. Now you may say, well, that's kind of an obvious thing, isn't it? Well, is it? Do we really, do we really know? Can we articulate why we believe that? So my goal here is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would enable the word to penetrate deep into our hearts and, uh, and change us and make us different than when we came in here. Would you pray with me real quick? Father, we pray that you will bless your word now and draw our hearts close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, an anthropologist, uh, anthropologist, didn't have enough coffee this morning, uh, neurologist Oliver Sacks tells about Virgil, a man who had been blind from early childhood. When he was 50, Virgil underwent surgery and was given the gift of sight. Can you imagine being 50 years old and seeing for the first time? Uh, Virgil's first experience with sight were confusing. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into a coherent picture was a bit more difficult. And over time, he learned to identify various objects. But his habits, his behaviors, were still that of a blind man. Dr. Sachs asserts that one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. And it is the interim, the limbo, that is so terrible. Oh. Sorry, streaming. Apparently everybody online just died the game. That's right. At least for those of you who are watching online, that, that was exciting, wasn't it? Streaming To truly see Jesus and his truth means more than observing what he did or said. It means a, a total change in identity. Now we have before us in this story two men walking back home after the tremendous events of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion and death. They thought it was game over. Their hopes had been snuffed out like a candle as they walked back home to figure out what was next in their lives. Peter even said, I'm done, let's go fishing. He went back to what he did before. They couldn't get past why all of these things had to happen to Jesus. I mean, isn't the word clear that he was to come and be a conquering king, delivering his people from oppression and tyranny? Wasn't he the one to establish a new order on earth with Jerusalem being at the center? Why were the women's testimony of seeing the empty tomb so perplexing to them? The truth is, these men were disappointed 
Because Jesus did not do what they wanted him to do. They needed a new way of seeing, if you will. And I find it interesting that Jesus blinded them to or hid himself to his true identity to take them back to the place where they could experience him in a fresh new way. Through looking at his word with fresh eyes is what they really needed. And they needed more than anything to die as spiritually blind disciples and receive a fresh revelation of Jesus through his word. You see, some of us here this morning feel as though God didn't come through for you in the way that you expected. You're walking with him, you're communing with him, but somehow things didn't turn out the way you thought and your expectations have been dashed. If that's you, then be of good courage. You have the resurrected Christ who rose again on the third day, walking beside you, giving you a fresh perspective of himself. And so that's my task here this morning, to declare the third day he rose again from the dead, that you would see Jesus through fresh eyes and experience him with fresh hearts. We don't serve a dead Savior. He's alive right now. He's with us right now. Confucius, he's dead. Buddha, he's dead. Muhammad, he's in the grave. Hare Krishna, dead. He might be a grasshopper floating around here somewhere. But our God is alive. If you go to any one of those other guys' tombs, they're still there. Jesus is not in his tomb. He is alive. So now to the scriptures. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The word Emmaus in the Greek means hot springs or warm baths. It was about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem, and these were two of Jesus' disciples that had been with him throughout his ministry. No doubt they were trying to figure out what in the world just happened. They must have been thinking to themselves, the Bible doesn't say anything about him suffering or rising from the dead, does it? Isaiah 53? Uh, you know, that's allegorical. Jonah being in a fish for three days, three nights? That's just a story to help us with our spiritual lives. Genesis 22? Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, but you know, that's a story about what God did. How does that have any bearing on what happened? They were trying to reason within themselves what just happened. And whenever we see things the way we want to see them, we will always miss Jesus. These men knew the scriptures. They knew the words of the Messiah, but they failed to know the Messiah of the words. Let me say that again. They knew the words of the Messiah, but they failed to know the Messiah of the words. Is this you? Maybe you're missing Jesus because you choose to see things the way you want to see them. Uh, there's a certain expectation that you have of him in your heart, and he's not fulfilling it in a way that you would like him to. And I find that when that happens to me, it's time to open my heart to him through surrender and obedience to his word. 
And that's when where I find peace. And I find this with some of my Calvinist friends. When I say the initials JC, they think of John Calvin and not Jesus Christ. And all they want to talk about is election, election, election. I find this with some of my charismatic friends. It's all about the Holy Spirit. Did the Spirit tell you what kind of ice cream to eat today? The Holy Spirit told me to kick someone in the stomach and he would heal them. I find this with some of my political friends. It's all about social justice. Jesus would never vote Democrat. Jesus would never vote Republican. I find this with some of my Calvary Chapel friends. Bro, it's all about the word bro. The word bro. And Israel bro. We're like the redheaded stepchild of all church movements. So, kind of the leftovers. So, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus draws near and he starts walking with them. They didn't recognize him. And I love this. These guys, down in the dumps, confused and scared, probably talking about their friend, confidant, and teacher was murdered. All they heard all they experienced in three and a half years was totally gone. Totally gone. It was all for naught. And then Jesus comes to them. And to them, he was a stranger because they were kept from recognizing him. And it was common in those days to travel roads with strangers and converse along the way. It was a very hospitable culture in Israel. And it made for a more pleasant trip. I mean, Jesus knew where they were at. And this tells me he was revealing himself to each of his disciples to bring them back to himself. It's not like Jesus says, hey, anyone know where Cleopas and Rufus is at? No, he knew right where they were at. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus knows where you're at. You may be lost and aimless, wandering through your life, confused, maybe scared. But Jesus knows where you are, and he's next to you, walking with you and sometimes he disguises himself in certain ways in your life where you don't recognize him why why would Jesus hide his identity I suggest it was a seven and a half mile Bible study that he gave to these guys and it was to rely on the promises of his word his word you see we get used to walking with God in certain ways and he wants to deepen our faith uh, he wants us to rely more on his promises for our lives. So if you're having trouble seeing Jesus in your circumstances, maybe open your heart and your mind as to why. And here's a question. Are you in the word of God? Let me ask an, a more pertinent question. Is the word of God into you? Do you mind the scriptures? Do you search the scriptures to know him? Are you really leaning on what he said? If you look through your telescope, you'll see worlds beyond your imagination. But if you look at your telescope, you won't see anything beyond that. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond. But most people only look at it, and so they see only a letter of the law. So how do you know the resurrected Christ? How do you know he rose again on the third day? How are your eyes open to him? Through his word. Through his word. Verse 17. And he said to them, 
What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? <laughs> what things? <laughs> I mean, this is comedy. Here's Jesus. What? What things? And they go on to describe to Jesus what had happened. And so he said to them, what's this conversation that you're having? And so Jesus, walking beside them, listening to this, asks a, asks a question. Can you see the comedy in this? This is actually pretty funny. So Jesus is not asking a question for information. Do you get that? He already knows the answer. He's asking the question to draw out of them what they already know. But he wants it to go 18 inches from their head down to their heart. And what they have already been taught. I mean, they shouldn't be scared, uh, doubtless, scared, confused. No doubt they were quoting uh, various Old Testament prophecies and trying to remember what Jesus said around the campfire all those, those three and a half years. This whole explanation just didn't make sense. Was he a failure or a success? Why did he have to die? Was there a future for the nation of Israel? So too with us. Jesus will always ask us a question about what we already know to draw faith out of us. And like Cleopas, we too shouldn't have the blues. We should be the most joyful people in the world with, with great expectation. And so they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, so Cleopas and, the, and his partner go on to describe what had happened. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's getting these two guys to recite to him all that has happened and how it fulfills the word, the scriptures. Jesus is trying to open their eyes. I mean, the fact that they mention how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to death should set off Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 alarm bells in their mind. But they missed it. The fact they mentioned he was mighty in word and deed should have reminded them of this. And I have a theory. I believe if they truly accepted and believed everything they were telling Jesus, that Jesus would have revealed himself to them right then and there. Now, if you want a fresh encounter with the Lord... If you want an experience with your risen Savior, if you want to rise above your doubts and your problems, then there's two things you must do. Number one, stop believing in yourself. Set aside your preconceived notions about God's plan for your life. Set aside trying to figure out the why of the things that aren't going your way and totally and completely surrender it all to Jesus. Number two, Start putting your faith into what he has already said. Into what he's already said. The resurrected Jesus who rose on the third day will be revealed to you. How? Well, Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation. Romans 8.39 says you can never be separated from God's love. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that you have wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says your labor is not in vain. Galatians 3.26 says that you've become God's child. Ephesians 1.3 says you have every spiritual blessing in all the heavenly places. 
Ephesians 1.7 says that you have the forgiveness of all of your sins. Ephesians 1.12 says that you are the praise of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.6 says you've been seated in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.7 says you've been given the incomparable riches of God's grace. And it goes on and on. Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says that you will be resurrected. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 14 says that you have faith, hope, and love. You have an excellent standing and great assurance, 1 Timothy 3.13, and it goes on and on. And listen to what they said. They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Ah, here's the crux of it. Yes, and besides all this, now it's... Besides all this, it's the third day. It's the third day. Again, they, they mentioned their unmet expectations. What they were hoping for was a great... Oh boy, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. What they were hoping for was a great political and military leader who would eradicate the Romans from their land and establish the kingdom on earth to put the nation of Israel at the center. They wanted a leader who would make their life easier here on earth rather than deal with their sins. They wanted somebody who would lower their taxes, establish good health care for all, give them better schools and set term limits on Roman senators. They wanted the government to have more control and stricter regulations on private business. Does any of this sound familiar? In the state of our current culture? Jesus didn't come to establish that the first time. He came to deal with the evil in our hearts like Kirk appropriately said. We are evil. Hi. You see, I love this about our church. I mean, I love this. This is not distracting to me at all. She can run around. Yes, our goal is not to have all of those things. Jesus will come a second time. Revelation 19, on a horse, tattooed down his thigh, and he will come to take over. And yes, there will be a utopian society. But that hour is not now. The hour is to build the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that when Jesus came on the scene, Rome required 90% of your income? And look at the power the church had and turn the world upside down. The physical kingdom will be established later, but it's the heart that God is after now. We, have, we don't have a policy problem. We have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. They go on to say, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find anything. Mary's testimony surprised them. It shocked them. They didn't want to dismiss it, and yet they didn't know how to believe it. Is it too good to be true? Or is it true? Again, where Jesus is leading them is to rely on the promises of his word. They even had Peter and John telling them, yep, tomb's empty. In fact, John 21 says they got in a race to the tomb. So now, 
You have the testimony of the women, Peter and John, that he was gone. And they should have remembered Deuteronomy 19.13 where it says, Only the evidence of two or three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. So look at how Jesus responds. O oh, foolish ones, in verse 25, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Excuse me. So after these men explain to Jesus all the evidence that points to him being alive and given themselves every reason to believe in their hearts that he was truly alive, that instead of trudging along to Emmaus, which they should have had a pep in their step, they should have been full of anticipation and excitement. They couldn't see it. No wonder Jesus calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. See, the problem wasn't in their heads. The problem was in their hearts. The evidence was indisputable. It made sense logically, but the problem wasn't logic. The, the problem was willfully believing that he was alive. My former pastor, Chuck Smith, uh, tells he told a story. He was in ministry for many years before the Jesus movement happened. He struggled for over 27 years, barely getting by. Uh, he would transfer churches every two years in the denomination he was in. And he never made enough money to make ends meet. But God always provided what he needed. And he tells a story of... Um, his wife Kay were praying and uh, they were just asking the Lord for provision and uh, Chuck got up got the mail and saw a, a check in the mail from somebody anonymous for like $500 or whatever it was back then and he said that he and Kay started dancing around the table praise the Lord God met our need praise the Lord and, uh, and then Chuck says God spoke to him and said, why weren't you dancing around the table before you got the check? So I've often thought of that. Why aren't we full of expectation? That he is good. You see, in essence, Jesus is saying to Cleopas and this other fellow, don't you see that I'm true to my word? Don't you trust in me and my character? And that's the problem, isn't it? If we can't believe that Jesus is really risen and don't really pl place our faith in who he is, trust in his character and his nature, and I struggle with this, if we can't hold to the fact that our confession here in the Apostles' Creed is the third day he rose again from the dead, that it's really true, then we will live lives of doubt, sadness, apathy, confusion, despair, while on our way to heaven. Is that really a way to live? And that's the essence of this part of our confession. Jesus is alive, family. He's here with us now, and he's leading us to a good end. Now, are you going to trust in your feelings, or are you going to trust him in the truth and the word? The difference will be the joy that you display. So what does Jesus do? It says here, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I love this. So Jesus treats them to a seven-mile Bible study. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like? Don't you wish you could have been there? So what did he teach them? What 
did he expound to them? We know that the scriptures themselves speak of Jesus on every page and every detail, even between the letters. This whole book is about Jesus. So maybe he taught him about the rising on the third day. Listen to what it says in Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, he wasn't abandoned to hell. Maybe he taught them that. Maybe he taught them an evil, and uh, when he said earlier to the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Jesus points to Jonah. Maybe he was teaching Cleopas about Jonah. Maybe he referenced Hosea 6, 1 and 2, which states, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will build us up. And after two days he will revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. How about Abraham? As far as Abraham was concerned, as soon as God gave the order to sacrifice his son, in Abraham's mind he was as good as dead. But the scriptures indicate here in Genesis 22.4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. It was then that God prevented the killing of Isaac and said something very, very interesting in Genesis 22.8. Listen to what it says. Then Abraham answered, My son, God will provide himself a lamb and a burnt offering. Now most of your modern translations insert the word for, which would render as God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering my son but most conservative scholars that i've read say that that word was actually put in there for translation purposes i believe it's not there which changes the whole meaning of it god will provide himself a lamb now i could go on and on with all these old testament examples but why do we hold this confession to be true why is the resurrection important to us as believers? Why does our entire faith depend on the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead? Let me give you four reasons. There's many more, but I'll give you four. Number one, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then God is not all-powerful. Jesus' resurrection points to the immense power of God. If Jesus didn't rise then he's not all-powerful and he's not worthy of our worship. Only he who created life can resurrect it after death. And I don't see anyone here laying their lives down for Buddha, for Confucius, for Muhammad, for Hare Krishna. You know why? Because these dudes are dead. They're dead. They're still in their graves. Jesus not only talked the talk, but he got up from death to prove everything he said was true. Number two, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he, uh, he wasn't who he said he was. His whole ministry was authenticated after his resurrection to prove that he was indeed God incarnate. Number three, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our sins are not forgiven. His sacrifice was not enough to satisfy God on our behalf if he didn't rise from the dead, and we're still headed towards an eternal death and separation from God. Paul put it this way, 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. We affirm that Christ is raised from the dead, not only because of the overwhelming evidence of his resurrection, but because if he's not, then you and I are living a total lie. Last one, number four, the resurrection guarantees our resurrection at the coming of Jesus Christ for his church at the rapture or on death. Because Jesus is alive and preparing a place for us in his kingdom, we can have confidence that we will be made alive when he comes for his church. One of those two ways, rapture or death. We will be resurrected at the second coming. The Bible is explicitly clear. And this has a purifying effect on our lives, knowing that he could come at any moment. If I know Jesus could come at any moment, then I live in constant expectation and excitement of him at his arrival. And what else? It also has a purifying effect on my heart. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we don't know what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he who hopes in this thus purifies himself. So they draw near to the village where they were going. And so Jesus acts as if they were going further. But they urge them, say, hey, stay with us. It's getting late. Why don't you... Why don't you hang with us? This has been a really good time being with you. These guys' hearts were warmed to the Word of God, the living Word of God, the Logos, to Jesus. They didn't want to depart company. They wanted more. And it's like that in this life, in this Christian life. Once you get the teaching of the Word and an an encounter with Jesus, you're satisfied, but at the same time, you want more. You want more of Him. And so Jesus acts as if he's going to depart company, but decides to accept their invitation and stay with them. And he obliges. They want to spend more time with him. And so Jesus continues with them. I think this is important. I think Jesus will walk with you as far as you want him to go. And he's not going to force himself. He's a perfect gentleman. The more you want to be with him, The more you listen to him, the less you'll think about your doubts, your fears, your confusion, because your answers are not wrapped up in a method or a formula or a plan. Your your answer is wrapped up in a person. Jesus. In verse 30, Jesus takes bread. He blessed it. He broke it and gave it to them. And something he had done several times before in his ministry, not the least of which was when he made a new covenant with them the night of his arrest. And then they recognized him. Interesting. How did they recognize him? I believe they saw the nail marks in his wrist as he handed them the bread. And then it all made sense. Verse 33 tells us that their encounter with the risen Christ that they hightailed it back to Jerusalem. What turned into a slow walk to Emmaus turned into a sprint back to Jerusalem at night. 
it was in the middle of the night, but they couldn't contain their excitement, and they found where the eleven apostles were gathered. Notice what they testified about first. Cleopas' words were, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Wait a minute. Those were the first words? That's interesting, because I would have thought, Hey, this guy came. We didn't know it was Jesus, but he gave us his Bible study, and he, you know, and that's not the first thing he tells them. The first thing he tells them, what Peter said was true. Isn't it interesting that Cleopas at first doubted that Peter saw anything? And yet they were now firm in their hearts that this testimony was true because they themselves had an encounter with Christ. Don't miss this family. The reason why Hill City receives the Lord's Supper as Jesus broke the bread is very often is that Jesus can make himself known to us in, in the Lord's table. And one of the things I appreciate about the ARP is how they guard the table. They guard it because it's sacred. And I believe the Lord's table is mystical. That the Lord Jesus is in our midst in, in the elements. Now, I'm not saying that the elements become the body and blood of Christ as the Catholics do. Um, but what I am saying is there's something about communion, um, something mystical that Christ is present with us in that. In fact, the early church had the elements at the center of the church, whereas now after the Reformation, it was the pulpit that was the center of the church. So, what can we gather from all of this? As you walk along the road of your Emmaus and think on his life and death, and maybe your thoughts of him are incomplete, fuzzy, Oh, but when you add his resurrection to the equation in your life, it will all make sense. You see, he loves you. He loves you. He lived for you. He died for you. Don't ever forget that, that he rose for you as well. This is the gospel of the resurrection. The good news that because he lives, you will live too. Because he walks with you, you will walk with him. Because he is alive, you are also alive. Because he is seated at God's right hand, so you will be too. Because he is God's son, so you are a child of God. How? How is this possible? Because he is risen from the dead on the third day. And you are now risen with him. Take hope, my brothers and sisters. Everything he has done and accomplished, especially the third day he rose again, will be accomplished for you, for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. Thank you that you did get up from the grave. You talked about it. You said you were going to do it. And you did it. And you declared yourself to be God Almighty. And you will come to judge the living and the dead. And someday, very soon I believe, you're coming to establish your kingdom on earth. And we look forward to that day. But Lord, help us to see the resurrection for what it is. 
that you were risen from the dead, that you are to be worshipped and glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, we said, Amen.